Okay, okay. Well, welcome and welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And we are here yet again for another fantastic, fantabulous, wonderful, all the adjectives um, guest. And this is someone who I've um, only met in person once. And um, it was such an impactful meeting that um, I reached out immediately and said, hey, would you be interested in talking to me on the podcast? And voila, they're here. So, Arkela, would you introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is Arkela. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the owner of Wildflower Communications, which is a strategic communications firm of one, just me right now, uh, one day to be a lot bigger and to be an abolitionist storytelling mechanism. So that's what I do. Awesome. And so how we met, interestingly enough, and I didn't get to attend your entire workshop, but you were doing an abolitionist meme-making workshop. And I was so fascinated by some of the techniques that um, you know people were in, employing and that I just listened to at the very end of the workshop. And I thought, wow, this is really just super interesting. In my first conversation with you, I asked you, well, wait, exactly what is it that you do? So exactly what is it that you do? So I've worked in strategic communications for the past four years, um, specifically in the social justice and nonprofit sector. When I say strategic communications, people are like, okay, you do marketing Um, and not quite when you're working in social justice and nonprofit. So the place that we met actually that abolitionist meme making workshop, I feel like is the best way to sum up what I do. It's using creativity and it's using, you know, my public relations background. I do have my bachelor's in public relations from Kent State. It's using both of those things as well as abolitionist theory um, and my own experience uh, being a queer Black woman in America to create communications that essentially ignites change. So that workshop in particular, abolitionist meme making, to be able to make money teaching people how to make memes that shit on the government, um, in particular LAPD, excuse my language, I'll try not to cuss as much. Um, oh, you explicit, cuss to, all you want. <laughs> okay, yeah. perfect. Okay, so being able to make memes that shit on the government and oppressive systems and being able to teach other people how to do that, I think that that moment, teaching that workshop, was one of the happiest moments of my life. Um, it's, it might sound silly, but like, we all love memes, right? We all love to laugh. We also all feel pretty passionately about the systems that are oppressing us. And so this idea came to me when I was working at my last job that what if more people knew how to make memes? What if we blasted Instagram with a bunch of memes that were shitting on LAPD or LA County probation or, you know, anything that's happening in the Missouri government. Um, And with that, I was like, we could really make this message blast out to a million more people. Cause I don't know about you, but I share memes more than anything else on my social media, because it's a chance for me to kind of escape the doom scrolling um, of just looking at super sad headlines and people arguing on Facebook. If I can just share a meme, I can laugh. I can make my mom laugh. Um, I can make people I haven't seen since freaking seventh grade laugh on Facebook. So I really feel very strongly about memes. Um, I know that they gain a lot of traction on social media. And so being able to talk about things like, you know, the nonprofit industrials complex, being able to talk about things like police brutality, um, being able to talk about things like systemic oppression. Even during that workshop, a lot of students from UCLA were actually in attendance. And one of them made a meme that I will not forget. And it was basically um, saying that universities want to give us like puppies and like stress balls and things like that instead of just helping students with housing. And the meme that she made was so funny because I remember being a college student and going to the library to play with the therapy dogs and then going home and crying because I didn't have food to eat. So that meme and being able to look at it outside of just the realm of social justice that I've been working in, but also being able to look at it 
from the unique perspective of a college student um, and seeing what they created was also super cool. So strategic communications for me is basically just combining creativity, my passion for social justice, as well as my practical training in public relations. So, you know, you've, you've also been talking a little bit about your, your work and transitions and tell us a little bit about sort of some of the transitions and thinking about transitions um, as far as your work is concerned and what you've learned about that and what you've learned about yourself. Yeah. So at the moment I am in the midst of trying to transition out of working for nonprofits. I honestly just hit a place of extreme burnout. I have been kind of depressed, um, having all types of digestive problems for the people with a Virgo rising or Virgo in their chart, you know, stress and tummy problems go hand in hand. Um, financial stress, let's be real, nonprofit does not pay. So trying to transition out of nonprofit. And a couple of weeks ago, I found myself in this place where I was like, oh no, I don't know how to do anything. And it's crazy to even say that even after the introduction that I gave today, where I feel really confident. I do know how to do a lot of shit, but I really found myself freaking out. I was like, all I'm ever going to be able to do is write social media campaigns that attack LAPD or all I'm ever going to be able to do is show up and give public comment at different county boards. And the panic really started when I was looking at open jobs and starting to think about applying for them. And I've worked in social justice communications, nonprofit communications. And most of the time I was a communications team of one. Um, I was doing the communication strategy, all the content production for email and website and social media and all those things by myself. And I've been doing that for the past four years. So I went to look at these four profit communications roles that operate with a full team. And they were using jargon that I honestly didn't know what it meant. And so I panicked. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to define, you know, key metrics and brand management, all these things. I learned about it in school, but I've been out of school for four years now. While I have been doing those things in the moment, I was like, I don't know if I can speak to how I've been doing those things. Right. And so I freaked out. I panicked. I called my mom crying. I called everybody on my phone crying. Um, what am I going to do? I don't want to work in nonprofit anymore. I'm making no money. I live in LA. Everything costs my firstborn child to do anything here. Um, so just really panicking. And then like I said, I started to rest, uh, maybe not by choice, but you know, after losing my job, not being able to find another one quickly, finally getting approved for unemployment, it was like, okay, I guess I'm gonna have to sit still for a second. And if you know me, sitting still is not my thing. But thank goodness I was able to sit still because in that time I was able to really deep dive into some of these job descriptions that I was looking at and start to understand, okay, I can do that. But how do I tell people that I can do that? And so I really started looking at, I Googled like top marketable skills for job hunters, right? And some of those things were communication. And I'm like, oh, great. I can do communication. I've been doing that for a really long time. And then there's other things like strategic planning, team management, problem solving and decision-making. And I know my experience is not just my own, right? Like I know there's a lot of other young professionals, even people further in their career who are like, I've been a nonprofit for four, five, 10, 20 years. All I know is nonprofit. All I know is, you know, the, the ground grassroots people management things. I couldn't do that in a corporate setting. Yes, you can. Because at the end of the day, what is strategic planning, right? It's managing short and long-term goals. Mm -hmm. If you have done door knocking or canvassing of any type, you know that you go out there with a number of people that you need to knock on their doors. There's your short-term goal. And then you know what you're trying to tell them to do. You're trying to get them to register to vote. You're trying to get them to come out and vote in the next election, whatever else that you're door knocking for. So that's managing a short-term and a long-term goal. So like right there, you already have strategic planning skills. That is one of the top needed skills for C-suite execs. So I'm like, okay, 
yeah, you just did volunteering at this nonprofit, but you have the same skills that, you know, Elon Musk wish he had. Um, so right there, the strategic management is already something that anyone who's worked in nonprofit can put on their resume right now, chat GBT, type it into one of those AI things, have them print out a really good paragraph for you because you know how to do strategic management and like coming to that realization that like what I do is not just strategic communications, but it's strategy in general. Like I am not just producing social media content for the sake of social media. I'm producing it because I have team members who are working on campaigns to move policy at the state level. Mm -hmm. Most people who are working in nonprofit, one, we wear a thousand different hats. So there's some strategy in that. So there's some strategy in knowing when you're just doing childcare um, at the facility versus when you're running communications versus, you know, campaigns versus when you're showing up to the LA County Board of Supervisors, you know, whatever you're doing, you have to be strategic in what hat you're wearing at any moment. Um, and from what I'm learning, applying for these jobs, a lot of, you know, for-profit companies, you don't have to wear 50 hats in your job. So if you've been able to work in nonprofit, you've worn 50 hats every day. Mm -hmm. So moving into a corporate job, you're probably going to make more money and wear less hats, which will be easier for you to juggle those three hats versus the 50. So you're ready to jump into a new job, basically. Right, right. So when you went through all of that, and I think that's that's really brilliant to be able to sit back and sort of put together, you know, what you've done and translate it into what the needs are, right? So there was this translation process. You were using one set of words or one set of thinking about the work, and then you matched it to, well, this is actually what the need is out there and found out, well, dang, I do that every day, right? So, but um, how did you think about this related to like at at the beginning or, or, you know, even if it's existing now for you, like imposter syndrome? I think a lot of us go through that where it's like, well, yeah, no, I can't do that. Yeah, no, I can't. You know what I mean? Like you don't really believe it, that that you have that um, capability or intelligence or ability. Like, did you go through that as well? Um, beyond, yes. <laughs> um, imposter syndrome is so real, especially like being a Black woman in America. Like I'm supposed to be superwoman at every given moment. And anytime that I'm not, like I must be like the worst person in the universe. Like I definitely went through that, continue to go through that. It's something I'm constantly unlearning. As corny as it sounds, like affirmations in the mirror. I know everyone tells you to do that, but maybe not just like the, I'm beautiful, I am love, which totally valid. Love that. Um, but also I would say things like, Hey, I run in, I ran an environmental justice campaign that reached 500 people. That's an affirmation that I literally did. Or, you know, I know that if I step into a room, heads are going to turn because one I'm black and a lot of rooms that I step into and nonprofit have not had many faces that look like mine. Affirmations was the first thing, like just literally starting to talk to myself about like, you know how to do this. And something that really helped me do that was looking back at what i done. It was really four years of just like chugging along, fighting oppressive systems, like experiencing all this heartache in the work and everything else. And so when I finally got that chance to rest, I just sat back and looked at where have I worked? I don't know about anyone else out there, but if you are a habitual job hopper, which I have definitely been in the past, you've done a lot of jobs. And so being able to just sit back and say, oh damn, I can sell handbags. And I can also go move policy at the state level. And I can do all of these different things. And I can make a kick-ass like margarita. And I can do all these things. Literally all the little skills that you gained in that job hopping that I gained in my job hopping, that really helped. Like just be able to look in the mirror like, hey, you're the girl that did this. You're the girl that did, you know, all of these even small things that are really remarkable. Sometimes it's just a, a good reminder, even if you can't see like the skills that you have, to just remember that you've done things, you do things every single day, like 
you woke up black in America today and you smiled. That's an accomplishment. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's so many different things. We push through so many things and I fed my cats today and I snuggled them. I'm proud about that because my cats are happy. I'm happy. There's so many things that literally just looking in the mirror, looking at myself directly, directly in the eye and say, girl, you brushed your teeth today and look at that smile, you know, mm-hmm. things like that mm-hmm. really helped. And then I must say like, I needed some external validation too. I know that so many like podcasts and different places, like you don't need external validation. It all comes from within. And like, yes, I needed my affirmations. I needed that inner peace, but like, I also needed friends around me. I needed community. I think that so much of capitalism makes us think that we can do it all on our own and that we're supposed to do it all on our own. And that's intentional because they don't want us to, you know, work together. But yeah, I finally developed a network of friends who love me. Um, They think I'm really cool and I think they're really cool. And so having that around really, really helped. And then Calling my mom, that poor woman, I call her like four or five times a day um, to just show her my outfit or whatever else. And then then I will say like music has been a really big part of me just kind of recovering from the imposter syndrome, um, which might sound weird, but I created something called a daily routine playlist on my Spotify. Mm -hmm. And so it's just five songs that I listen to literally every single day. And the playlist, like the songs will rotate out. But in those five songs, I tell myself, you are not working during these five songs. You are not on your phone during these five songs. You could be washing dishes. You could be sitting and praying, whatever else. But like, don't be on technology. Don't be thinking about work. Just kind of allow yourself to tune into self. Um, And that's probably been the best thing I've ever done for myself. It's just creating a five song daily routine playlist. I listen to every single day um, because it's a time for me to take a break and just tune in with myself. I feel like even, you know, sitting in a room completely alone, I would think, oh, I'm tuning into myself. I'm meditating or something. But no, I'm just sitting there overthinking. (laughs) Like. I need the music to be able to kind of guide me to a place of relaxation Yeah, to be able to guide me to a place of just like turning internal and not in like a self-destructive way um, and not in a way that I'm just ridiculing myself. Um, music really helps me with that. And so some of the songs that have been on this playlist, His Eyes on the Sparrow by Whitney Houston, one of my favorites, mm-hmm. um, my great aunt uh, used to sing it all the time, had the most beautiful voice and I love her so much. Um, other things moment for life by Nicki Minaj and Drake. Like there's all types of music that go on here songs. And I'm like, okay, I can sit with this every single day. Um, I know that this is going to inspire me to think things that they don't have to be positive. I feel like I hate toxic positivity culture. I don't have to pretend like, you know, the sky is blue every day, even though I live in Southern California and Loki is, um, but I don't have to, you know, pretend that things are perfect every day. This music kind of reminds me that even when things aren't perfect every day, I can still have a moment of peace with myself and just check in with myself. And that's been really nice to be able to develop that with literally just five songs a day and just allowing myself to tune into them, you know, as much as I possibly can. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, snaps, claps, thumbs up the whole nine yards for me, which means like, yes, 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 yes. Right. And, um, you know, I was thinking as you were talking um, about how concrete and simple some of these things are that, um, you know, you don't have to go out and buy a self-help book. You don't have to, you know, you probably have many of these things right at your fingertips. So for me, I actually like to, and people know this, I like to take my, um, photos and pictures that I've taken and actually put them in separate folders. And then the folders generally when I'm, you know, you know, feeling a particular way or need to feel a particular way, I know like which folder to go into. So there's the flower folder, there's the puppy folder that has more than puppies in it now. You know, I've used a lot of the techniques you're talking about too. And, you know, thank you also for talking about external validation. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all human. 
period, end of discussion, like, boop, um, we're not robots, we're not, you know, um, artificial intelligence. And I think there is something about humans and the need for human relationship or some type of human relationship that also includes external validation. So you're not supposed to do it by yourself. That's why we're in community with other people, why we're related to other people, why we relate to other people. So I think that's really powerful what you're saying. I definitely think that finding that external validation was really hard for me at first because especially as a woman, so often we're told that we're fishing for compliments um, and things like that. I remember one day distinctly with uh, my ex-partner, I was, we were riding in the car and my twist out was popping. Like I was excited. I put a lot of time into this twist out and it looked good. And so I turned and I was like, notice anything about my hair. Like I'm super excited. And he was like, oh yeah, your curls look really good. And then his brother who's in the back seat, he was like, so you like compliments? I was like, well, yeah, as much as any other person. He was like, oh, just seems like you might be fishing for compliments. Are you a narcissist? excuse me sir no like my (laughs) twist out is just popping sorry you're jealous like and so that moment like as much as now I'm able to talk about it and laugh and say he was stripping in that moment it like wrecked me I was like oh my god I'm fishing for compliments I need external validation I'm not confident on my own and and I freaked out and I think that that story of just like we let people make us feel bad all the time. Mm-hmm. So what is the difference between letting someone make us feel good? And I think in order to get that external validation, I had to get really clear around like what parts of me need to be validated right now. So specifically in the job hunt, when I'm freaking out about imposter syndrome, feeling like I can't apply to these jobs, you know, I can call my mom and say, Hey, I'm feeling really insecure about my skills. And my mother is going to know like, girl, what, you know, she's going to talk to me about all the things that she's very proud of with me. And I feel like in order to achieve that external validation, I had to be real with myself about the fact that I need, you know, it sounds silly, but I need someone to call me pretty sometimes. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I also had to be real with the people that I love and tell them I'm needing this right now. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like holding a mirror up to the parts of me that are hurting and that I feel insecure about. And then like being brave enough to communicate that to somebody. It is hard to tell someone, I I don't feel very intelligent today. It is, Mm -hmm. it's hard to like be that vulnerable. And so I think the best advice I can give around like finding that external validation is be smart about who you're asking for it from. Like that day in the car, my ex and his brother, those were not the people to try to get that validation from. Like they, I knew very well, like they don't see me as beautiful as like my mom does. Mm-hmm. Um, so I should have just called my mom and said, girl, look at my twist out, you know? Right, right. And so it's being selective about who you're, you know, seeking that external validation from because you don't want it to end up biting you in the ass. Um, and then two, like being real about being vulnerable and brave and how you communicate that you're needing that because people who love you and who are around you, if you communicate that you are needing someone to uplift you, they're going to do it and they're not going to question it. And they're not going to accuse you of being a narcissist or, you know, fishing for compliments or anything else. The people who value you are going to be more than happy to hype you up. Yeah. It's so interesting. You know, usually this happens when I'm moving or I'm cleaning up the house or something, I'll find a paper that I wrote, you know, some kind of paper that I either wrote for school or something that got published. I think the first time this happened, it was probably something I I wrote for school. I'm guessing. And, you know, I always struggle with this. Am I a good writer? You know, am I good enough? You know, that kind of thing. You know, and and again, I think this is, you know, what we struggle with is is Black folks in school is that will be one area along with math that they'll take you down. And they'll take you down based on your race, not based on really your intellect. And um, when I was actually in college, I had a teacher tell me that I was a bad writer. 
that she, that I couldn't write. Like she gave me a C on a paper. I had never gotten a C on a writing assignment. And the minute that happened, that's when I thought, well, I suck at writing and started to have this really weird and hard relationship with writing. And I always struggle. So when I have to write something, it's always like this internal battle of you suck. No, you're fine. No, you suck. Well, look what you've done before. Well, who cares? They just did that because they were just being nice. You know, that kind of stuff. I have this like internal dialogue. And um, I actually pulled out a paper. I was reading this paper and literally I thought the paper was written by somebody else. I really did until I looked and I was like, oh, dang, I wrote this. Like, how's it pop? Like, this is really good. Like, how is it that I wrote this paper? But it is that I had the ability to write the paper. I have this ability to write. So it's so easy for us to be negatively judged by somebody and internalize that judgment um, and then have it kind of affect how we move forward. So when you were talking about, you know, making friends and stuff, LA is a tough place to make friends if you don't have them here already. So how did you do that? Um, yeah, that's a great question. How did I make friends out here? Lord. Um, <laughs> I think the universe just kind of gifted me with some friends, honestly. Um, and really good ones at that. I genuinely feel like I woke up one day and was like, I'm going to move to LA. And then I did. And then everything crashed and burned around me, but I'm still here standing tall, feeling good and happened to have a really cool network of friends. I think that, uh, I used to hate hearing this. I will say like when I was in my really low moments, everyone would be like, well, when you're better, you attract better. And I'd be like, okay, like I'm trying to be better. Right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm trying my best to feel better. But I will say like, once I learned how to laugh on my own, um, I found some really funny people to kick it with, you know, I really, and it wasn't until I, I hate, I feel nervous saying this because I don't want people to feel how I felt. Like I'm in a bad moment. You're expecting me to just suddenly be okay. And then good people will come into my life. Um, no, because systemic oppression exists and cycles of harm exist and trauma exist. And it takes access and it takes intention. And it takes a lot of things that are outside of your control to feel good all the time. And that's just the reality of it. And I think that so, so often when we talk about mental health and we talk about spiritual wellness, like we forget that like, yes, our spirits, you know, have the desire to be well and be happy, but the real world is hard. Right. And so it's finding that balance. And I think for me, music has helped me find that balance when I was, I moved here and I only knew one person, um, which is my ex. I only knew my coworkers. And, you know, obviously both of those things have ended, you know, since, since I moved here. And so music has been everything to me. I really just learned how to like laugh on my own, like listening to some really funny music. I have some that I can totally send to you. Um, I learned the power of just singing. Now, y'all, I can't sing. My mom makes fun of me for it all the time. It's like a running joke in our family. But when I tell you I sing every day, I have committed to every time I get in my car, I'm blasting the music and I'm singing at the top of my lungs. And then dancing. Dancing is a huge part of just like my personal well-being. So I feel like as silly as it sounds, but when I give myself the opportunity to dance and sing and just goof off around my apartment, I attract better when I leave it. And I also learned that like, I just don't need to be outside my house all the time, to be real. Um, when I first moved here, I was like, I have to be hyper social to make friends. I have to meet all the people. I have to introduce myself to all the people and learn all the things. And that was not working. I was just meeting a bunch of people that I would follow on Instagram and then literally never talk to again. Mm-hmm. I was not making friends. And so it wasn't until I was like, okay, I'm going to sit my ass in the house and I'm going to binge watch some shows and I'm going to listen to music. I'm going to dance around my apartment. And I'm going to snuggle my cats. And then when I leave my house, you know, maybe three times a week, 
somehow the universe guided me to places where I met people who were super cool, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so now I have my two best friends who they know that like we can kick it all day, but once a certain hour hits, my social battery is gone. I need to go home and I need to shake my ass with my cats. Like that's just the reality of it. And so, you know, I get nervous saying that, you know, you got to be able to have fun on your own in order to have fun with others. But I think intentional time of enjoying space with yourself and, and, and it's not necessarily like I'm just sitting here alone, like not doing anything. Like I'm listening to music, whether it's new music or like old music that I used to love, like throw on some yin yang twins. And I promise you, you can't sit there and be mad. (laughs) And then, Mm -hmm. you know, when you go outside of the house, like you're just going to have a little bit more brightness to you. And, and that light, I genuinely feel does attract the right people into your life. I, I genuinely had to learn that. Like, I just remember, you know, one of my old coworkers telling me like, be the son of your universe. And I was like, what? Like, that doesn't make sense. Um, but then she kind of mapped it out. She's like, you have to think about yourself as like the solar system. You're the sun, you're the light. And you get to choose where people fall in your life. Are they like Mercury, super close? Are they like Jupiter, far out there, but we're still cool? And what does that look like? And that solar system analogy and visual has helped me so much. So I'm like, okay, the sun is going to exist regardless, right? Like whether, you know, an asteroid hits Mercury or not, the sun is still there. And so I feel like doing that has really helped me just understand that I am my own light. I am, you know, the light of my universe. And while I, I try not to like, get into that slippery slope of like, this is my world and you're all just living in it. But in reality, I'm creating my world and I can choose who's living in it. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, once I had that vision really clear, it was a lot easier to attract what I deserved. And I am not going to say that I went out and was like, I know exactly what I want. I'm going to go to this event and I'm going to make five friends. No, it wasn't like that. It was you know, okay, I'm starting to get clear about what kind of people I want in my life. I go to the grocery store, me and this girl are both looking at the same pressed tofu and we start to strike up a conversation about tofu. And now suddenly we're hanging out that weekend. And right, so right, right. It's not this perfect, like you go out and you just look someone in the eyes and you're like, you're my perfect best friend um, or you're my partner for life and things like that. Okay, that's it's not that's like frightening. That. That's very frightening. Our right. Right. Like when people try to befriend me that quickly, I'm like, okay, wait, no, no, that's no, you don't even kind of know me yet, but yeah, Definitely. that, that was a hard pacing. thing. Yes. Pacing yeah. is so important too. Like whether it's, you know, friendship or even like the job hunt, like I've been talking about, like, I ask questions in interviews now. When I'm doing an interview, it's not just for you to question me. It's for me to question you yeah. um, because I, I need that pace. I need to know, like, what am I signing up for? Because when I say, like, red flags were popping up everywhere and I wasn't looking at them or I was just pushing them to the side, like, it's important to take that time and be intentional. Intent and impact, just like communication strategy. What is the intent of what I'm trying to build here? Whether it's this job, this friendship, whatever else, what's the impact of the things I'm doing in every moment? What's the impact of the things that you're doing? What's the impact of you telling me that you've had 10 employees quit in the past year? Hmm. Interesting. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> things like that, just yeah. really being able to monitor what am I actually experiencing now? And how is that going to affect me? And how does that align or misalign with the vision that I have for myself and my life? Yeah. I think, you know, I, I can't thank you enough for talking about when in an interview to have questions for the um, employer. And I, you know, as a person who has to interview people a lot, who has done interviewing over the years, I'll put it that way. I'm always struck when a person never has like one question, not one at all. And even if I'm the third person they're interviewing or the third set, like it could be a first set on the second set, or I'm the last person they're interviewing. It's like, I always worry when they don't have any questions. I wonder, 
you know, is it a good fit? Do they know how to think about um, asking questions about, is this a good fit for them? Because like you say, the interview is, it's a two-way decision. Do I want to work here? Do I even want to pursue this further? And then the employer, is this person going to be a good fit for us to work here? So to me, it's like, I'm trying to figure out my fit if I fit into that place as the um, applicant. So I, I can't encourage enough, like, think of questions, like already write them down. And some of them are questions you can ask from interview to interview, like your basic questions. And others can be questions that come up as you're hearing things. Like if you hear a red flag or if you hear a green flag, dig a little bit deeper. That can be your question. I think when I, most of the time when I'm doing a job interview, um, it's not because I'm financially stable and living in a mansion and really seeking my dream job, right? It's most of the time it's like rent is due. I don't have a job. I need to get into this job as quickly as possible. And so I used to be really scared to ask questions. I was like, okay, if I ask the wrong questions, if I ask too many questions, they're not going to hire me. It's going to be like, "Mm, this girl's like asking too much um, and things like that. And then I just kind of realized I did an interview like not that long ago where I was like, what is your onboarding process? How long does it take before you consider someone ready to complete the the task in their job? And I think that that's one of the best questions that you can ask. Um, Because if the answer is, oh, well, we just feel it out. Mm, So you're telling me you don't have a process for getting new employees acquainted to the work? That's nerve wracking. You want me to just dive right in? I need to know who I'm working with. I need to know what I'm doing before I do it. You know, and so definitely asking about what's the onboarding process? How do you build team camaraderie? That's really important. Like as much as we all say like, oh, you know, coworkers are coworkers, you know, I work at work and then I come home. Um, if you can't get along with your coworkers and there's no intentional team building, no intentional relationship building in the office space, it's not going to be a good experience for you. And as much as we like to think that we leave work at work, if you're working eight hours a day, sleeping eight hours a night, there's not a whole lot of other time that you're not experiencing work. So for most of us, work is like at least a third of your life. So it matters what job that you're working. It matters that you're getting along with your coworkers. It matters that you're in a space that is validating. Something I learned with my last job, I was fired during a week where I kicked ass at my job, right? And so I wish that when I did that interview, I'd asked, what are your performance benchmarks? What are you expecting of me? Making sure that you're asking the questions that make sense for you. So for me, for example, I've had a lot of concussions. Um, I'm the clumsiest girl that you'll ever meet. And so for me, I have to ask questions now around what does it look like to work from home majority of the time? Because I have to be able to manage the lighting and the sound and things like that for my migraines. I have to ask questions like, what do you consider a reasonable accommodation? Ask that question in an interview and God, you're going to be really surprised by the answers because most people are like, well, I don't know. We'll just see. If you're asking an employer as a disabled person, if I'm asking an employer, what is a reasonable accommodation? And you don't know what I mean, that's not going to be a good fit for me. I need people Mm -hmm. who know what that means, who have mechanisms to support me with my reasonable accommodations. And so I really feel like Definitely before any interview, obviously do your research, know the company that you're interviewing for, be able to speak to their mission and their vision, all those wonderful things, but also be able to ask, like, how am I going to fit into this place? Mm -hmm. Um, Because as much as they need you to do the job, you need them to one, pay you what you deserve and two, treat you as you deserve. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you can't confirm that they can do that, it doesn't matter if they can confirm that you can do the job. So at the end of the day, most of us, especially Black folks, especially Black women, we can do any job. We've had to wear so many hats in our lives. We've had to experience so many things and build so many skills that any job that I interview for, 
I can do it. And I know that I can do it. It's about, do I want to do it for these people? Are they going to support me in doing it? And am I going to learn to do things that I want to do in the future yeah. um, in this job? So it's definitely that two-way street. Like you said, like an interview cannot just be, can I do the job? Because at the end of the day, I can. Um, yeah. And so it's yeah. got to be a lot more than that. And I love the idea of thinking about where, what can you learn in the job? Not just, can I do the job as it is today, but where do you want to go in your career? And are there opportunities for you to have those learning experiences? Like like where I, I work now, my interest was very much in learning more about a legislative policy. Like I know enough to be dangerous, but I don't know enough to be like, you know, the mad scientist dangerous. I'm like, I'm not that dangerous, right? But I wanted to learn more. And I knew that, you know, working at this organization, they had some of the top people who have the ability, you know, who have been doing this kind of work. And I'm like, okay, you know, I might not be doing direct policy work, like direct, direct, but um, I want to learn more about it. So um, that was like an attractive thing for me about that sort of future, future me or future skill me, even if it's not a job that I will have, at least I have the skill set. So when I'm in that conversation, I know how to have that conversation because I learned it in my job. So we have been talking about, then this is the beauty of this podcast. It will go around Job's Corner. We will talk about, we will have tangents, a galore, which is fine <laughs> um, because this is how conversations work. And this is really a conversational podcast. So, um, and you drop tons of wisdom, but is there one last piece of wisdom dropping that you would like to leave our listeners with? Um, I mean, it sounds silly, but like I said, you can do any job. Honest goodness, these jobs, like the things that they put in that description, you can probably Google how to do it. I am 26. I never learned how to use Microsoft Excel, but any job that says that you need to be Excel proficient, I'm putting it down because I can Google any answer, right? And so I feel like just be confident that you can literally be confident that you can do any job, be confident that you can do anything. Job things, important. You can do it all. But I think more importantly is community. You don't have to embark on all of your adventures by yourself. You don't have to embark on this healing journey. Healing's a buzzword now. It's not like the same thing as it used to be, but you don't have to do it alone. And you don't have to be afraid to tell people that you don't want to do it alone. I think the number one thing that prevented me from getting to you know the place of healed that I am today was thinking that I had to do it all alone, thinking that I had to do the yoga, the meditation, you know, the prayer and all of that alone and not realizing that sometimes it's eating dinner with friends is where you're going to do the most healing um, and going on a million tangents on a podcast interview. Like that's where you're going to do all of that healing, allow yourself to exist with others and just really reap the benefits of being around people who are pouring into you. Wonderful. So thank you so much for joining me on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. It was amazing to have um, you on the podcast and to learn more about just sort of your thoughts and your work. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for interviewing me. This is such an exciting, I've never done anything like this, uh, but I was like, Hey, I like to talk and I have a lot to talk about. This might be a really good idea for me. <laughs> so. Awesome. Fantastic. I'm glad you were able to join us. And for our listeners, they know that um, the producer, I was going to say the producer makes me say this as if he's standing in the room with like, you know, shaking me or something, which is like subscribe, comment. Yes, I'm supposed to say it. But to me, the most important thing is that we share the podcast with others because you never know who needs to hear this message. So thanks so much for listening in and we'll see you next week on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. <laughs>